Hey, welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Check us out on the web at missiodeschicago.com. Our reading this morning is going to be from 1 Peter 2. We're going to start in verse 11 and go to 3.7. So it's a long one, so stay with me. Um, here it is. This, um, this is 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent to him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters of all respect, not only to the good and to the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your pure and respectful conduct. And do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be in the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, children, live with your, excuse me, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. So, <clears throat> Brian is, um, Brian, our main preaching pastor, he's out of town, he's, he's doing his sabbatical. I hope you guys are all praying for him that, that this is like a time of refreshing where like God is pouring into him even as he pours into us. Um, a couple months ago, he kind of was shaping this series, he was like dividing up all the text, he was like, bam, you're going to preach this week on this, Reed, you're going to preach this week on this, like we're going to have a guest speaker here. And so I was going through the schedule, seeing what like he had assigned me, and I came to this text, and the first thing I realized was it was really, really long. Um, and I knew that there was like some of like the household code stuff in the middle of Peter that talked about like slaves and wives and husbands. Um, and then I read the text, and I was like, oh, this is going to be, um, this is going to be interesting. 
Um, there's like certain texts you get really, really excited to, to talk about as a preacher, texts that like God is used to shape your, your relationship with him and your view of him and, and your understanding of the church. Um, and I, you probably all also have like those favorite verses that God just keeps calling back to you that encourage, that encourage you in like times when you're pressing through something hard or just, just give you joy because they seem to so clearly represent who God is to you. Um, True confession, this is not one of those passages for me. Um, this, is, this is a passage I, I, I struggle with. And I think one of the reasons I struggle with it is, is because of the way this text has been used in the past. I think it's hard for us um, with 2,000 years of Christian baggage to come to this text um, and receive it as the good word of God because this text has been used in I think actually the opposite way that it was initially intended to be used. Um, texts like 1 Peter have often been used by those in power to consolidate their own position of privilege and exploitation. People in power have, have taken this text and they've, um, instead of putting themselves in the posture of, of a slave or a woman who they were like on this lower stratus of sphere in the Greco-Roman world, rather than reading the text from that vantage point, which Incidentally, is who this text was written to. The early church was filled almost exclusively with slaves and women. They've instead read it from a posture of privilege and power. And so they're like, this isn't a manual on how I'm supposed to like, work out my faith in the midst of unjust suffering. Rather, they saw this text as, and they were like, oh, this is how I'm allowed to treat my slaves. Oh, this is how we can kind of like prop up patriarchy. And so I think, I think the, the historical way this text has been read can really, really color the way we see it. And I think it can make it maybe sound like not good news. Uh, Bran, ugh, I can talk, Bran. It's a combination of Brian and Bam's names, I guess. Um, <laughs> Brian, Bam, and I, um, a couple months ago, we went down to Alabama, and we attended the opening of a memorial for um, peace and justice. And this was a memorial to uh, lynchings that had taken place in the South. It, it was a... a there was a museum and there was a, a monument to help us remember the, the injustice that put to death um, innocent people of color. Um, and it was a really, really, it was a, it was a sobering experience. It was a heartbreaking experience. They had these, these massive, um, slightly rusted things that were like, they were shaped like coffins. Um, and as you walked in, the floor kind of dropped out in these coffin-shaped image, um, coffin-shaped metal squares um, would start to hang above you and it just, your, your heart just like it sunk deeper and deeper as the floor sunk lower and lower. Um, and you would look at some of them and you would see like the names of like whole families um, represented. And it, it, was, it was a really, really heartbreaking experience. But even more heartbreaking than, than walking through that memorial was actually when I was in the museum that, that went along with this, um, this place. And I, when I was there, I, I ran across this quote um, it's by William McWillie, the governor of Mississippi in 1857, and he said this, as a Christian people, it is the duty of the South to keep them in, the present, in their present position at any cost and at every peril. He's saying it is the, our duty as a Christian people to perpetuate a system of injustice that enslaves people based on the color of their sin. Our duty as a Christian people it's, it's statements like this that make First Peter a hard text for us to read. And I think it applies to, the, to like the, other, the other challenging pieces here. Um, in Nazi Germany, 
It was often talked about um, the German people's duty as a Protestant people, as a Christian people, to support the Nazi regime. Hitler was like a second Martin Luther. Um, the Third Reich was like a second Reformation. This was, this was the end, this was the goal of, of what had started back um, when they broke from the Roman Catholic Church. So it was your duty as a Christian person to support um, this, this violent nationalism. Um, we see it in, in terms of men and women. That, that it is your duty as a Christian husband to buy into some sort of patriarchal norm um, where your wife is basically seen as some sort of possession. I was Googling around trying to find examples of, um, of like, like, like a good quote to kind of summarize the way this has been like applied to women. Um, and I figured I would find it um, from some guy in like the 60s or maybe some guy like in the Puritan time. Like I thought I'd have to go really, really far back to find a really, really terrible quote. Um, I didn't. Um, I, was, I was Googling and like the first website that popped up, and this, it, just, it just blew my mind. Um, the first website that popped up was basically this person had compiled instructions on how it was the duty of Christian husbands to physically discipline their wives. And it's, 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 it's twisting of scripture like that that makes 1 Peter a really, really, really hard text to read. Uh, as I was kind of, kind of like processing this, this, this quote kept coming to mind. You, this is going to be an interesting sermon, guys. Um, it, this, is, this isn't going to be the, the happiest thing you've ever heard of. Um, because now I'm going to quote Marx. Um, so Karl Marx said this, and this, is, this quote it kept coming into mind. You've heard it summarized a lot. Um, he said, religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of the heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. And what Marx is saying here is he's saying that, that Christianity, it's not something liberating. It's not something that gives a voice to the oppressed. It's not something that lifts up the poor and the downtrodden. Rather, religion is the thing that people in power use to keep people oppressed. It's the thing that they say, this will just dull your senses. Like, don't worry about like, the injustice in the world. Just hope for heaven. It'll get better someday. For now, let me just oppress and exploit you. And if... If the Nazi, if the slave owner, if, if uh, the patriarchal abuser, if, if they're right about how we should read 1 Peter, then Marx is correct. But as you might guess, I don't, I don't think the slave owner or the Nazi um, or the abuser, I don't think they got 1 Peter right. I think they got it wrong. And I want to suggest today that 1 Peter is not primarily about letting evil have its way but rather Peter is articulating a distinctively Christian way in which our identity in the midst of, the, of a world filled with oppressive powers, a way that we live out our identity in a world that is filled with oppressive powers. I think that in this text, Peter is telling us what Christian resistance to evil looks like. Um, I just want to kind of make a statement before we really jump into the body of this. Usually I really like to preach like kind of verse by verse and hit like everything and go into all the details. Obviously I can't do that today because we have almost a full chapter of text. So I'm like, I'm gonna have to skip over stuff. If as we're, and there's just tons of like landmines and difficult things and beautiful things in this text. So if you have questions about um, anything that we talk about today, like 
I'd be more than happy to, to sit down and talk to you about them. Bam would be more than happy to sit down and talk to them. So like, we're accessible, but I'm not gonna hit everything today and I apologize. So would you guys pray with me really quickly um, as, we, as we dive into this? Um, God, I am extremely aware in this moment of, of how much uh, we need your spirit, of how much we need your grace to even comprehend, to understand your word, God. Um, I, I pray that as I, as I dive in the text, as we look at this together, that, that you would allow my words to fall to the ground, but that your spirit would carry the word of God. Um, God, I pray for, for grace and mercy and peace as we go into this really, really difficult text, God, that you would, um, that we would not shy away from the difficult things in Scripture, God, but that we would embrace them and try to discern what you are trying to teach us and where you are trying to lead us. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, I want to talk about three marks of Christian resistance to evil. What does, what does Christian resistance to evil look like? And the first one is the source of Christian resistance, which is our identity. Um, this is 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12. It says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. If you were here for either of our first two sermons, whether on the sermon that I kind of introed the series into, or if you were here when Josh Taylor spoke the week after, you heard a lot about our Christian identity as exiles, as sojourners, that we are not a people who, who necessarily call this place home, but our citizenship is in heaven. And what that means is that we don't have the privileges or the rights or the cultural assumptions of the place where we happen to live. But that at the same time, for Peter, holiness looks like engagement, that we cannot be a holy people unless we are people living in the midst of a broken world, that our holiness, it, it shines through precisely because of its contrast with the world around us. So this, this leads us to kind of a perplexing question, and it's how, how do we live this, like, this life of holiness as engagement, how do we live as a people in the world when we're exiles? How do we interact um, and, and push back against oppressive powers and oppressive systems when we don't have citizenship, when we don't have rights or privileges, when some, some sorts of actions for Christians are simply off limits, that power and violence and coercion, that these are not the way that God is at work in the world and it's not what he's calling us to. So how do we interact with evil? It, it's, it's a, this is a really, really difficult question, and I think it's what Peter is kind of getting at in this section. He's saying, okay, here's your identity, your sojourners, your exiles. Because of this, the way you engage and the way you resist evil is going to look really, really different. It's going to take some creative engagement for you to be able to resist evil. I think uh, as Peter's writing this, he's kind of holding this theme of exile, but at the same time, he's remembering what God has spoken to his people in Jeremiah 27 when he said, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfa welfare you will find your welfare. That's Jeremiah 29.7. And, but then he's faced with the question, what do we do when the culture of the city we are sent to is filled with oppression and evil? And for Peter, the answer is neither to try to win the favor of Caesar 
nor is it to rise up in armed revolt against this evil and oppressive government that at the time was persecuting Christians for their faith. Rather, the answer to this question of cultural engagement is articulated in the terms of subversive submission. So the first mark of Christian resistance is it's sourced out of our identity. We need a creative way to be able to engage with evil because we are exiles. The second mark is the strategy of Christian resistance, which is subversive submission. Now, as I read through that text, most of it sounded, I mean, maybe it was just me, but as I read through it the first time at least, most of it sounded fairly like authoritarian, right? Just like, these people are in charge, like, we're just going to assume that because they're in charge, that's the way it's supposed to be, so you should submit to them. Like, that's kind of like, at your first reading, that's kind of what you just assume it's saying. And I think that makes sense as people who live um, in our current culture, but... If, if you were reading this and you were um, a slave or a woman or really anyone in, in the Greco-Roman world in the first century, you would have, you would have noticed some, pe- some peculiar things um, about the way that Peter is calling people to submit. And I just want to point out a couple of the ways that Peter is subverting the assumptions of the culture. Um, Roman and Greek culture, it was basically formed around a status pyramid. You had like the emperor and his officials and priests and wealthy people kind of all at, at the top. And at the bottom you had, you had slaves, you had women, um, you had non-citizens. And so uh, the few were living off basically the, the work of the many. And it involved this really, really complex system of honor and shame that essentially meant if, you were, if someone was lower than you on the pyramid, you did not associate with them because they weren't going to get you anywhere. The way that you get somewhere in Greco-Roman society is you, you kind of like um, buddy up to the people above you and you accrue honor in that way. And Peter, um, again and again, is kind of subverting this system. Um, the first place I see it is um, in 1 Peter 2.17, where it says this, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And I think it's easy to put the emphasis on that last one. I think people often have, especially when government is doing something evil or oppressive. They'll just say, well, First Peter says, honor the emperor. So you can't say anything. Um, just kind of keep your mouth shut. Because God put them there, so just honor them. And we should, we should honor our leaders in the same way that we honor everyone else. But notice what Peter's doing there. He's completely flattened that status pyramid. It's not just honor the emperor because he's above you. It's also honor everyone. I love what Joel Green says about this. He says, it's hard to imagine a more devastating critique of the Roman way. For with pairing these two directives, honor everyone and honor the emperor, Peter has flattened the status pyramid of the Roman world. Get this. He just made one's response to the slave next door no less than one's response to the emperor. So even in telling the people to, to honor the emperor, he's also subverting the emperor's claims that he's some kind of demigod, that he, he stands above and against and over the people. He's, he's put the emperor on the level of the slave next door. Uh, the second place, I think we see Peter kind of um, subverting the cultural assumptions around um, this status pyramid is when he talks about slaves, um, 2 Peter 2, 18 through 20 says this, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and to the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it to you if, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, 
you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And again, we hear that text. That's, that's hard for me to read um, because I know this is what was told to like, like this is what was preached um, to African Americans when they were suffering um, under the yoke of slavery by people who confessed themselves to be Christians. But again, I think Peter is subverting the assumptions that, because again, much like American slavery was justified by saying, well, they're not really human, the, the Greeks and the Romans, they justified slavery by saying, they're not really human. They can't really think as well as us. They don't feel the same way as us. They're, they're, they're a different sort of person. And Peter completely turns this on its head by using um, a really, really interesting word. He uses the word um, kalafizo. And this, this is a really r- rare Greek word in the New Testament. It's only used four times. And it means to, to be beaten or kind of to, like be punched in the face. Um, twice Paul uses it when he's talking about his participation in the sufferings of Christ. And the other two times it's used are actually in the Passion. It's when Jesus is like surrounded by Roman soldiers um, and he's being beaten on his way to the cross. Um, I think I have, the, I have the text from Mark up here for you to see. It says this, and some began to spit on him, that's, this is Jesus, and cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And that word strike is the exact same word that Peter uses here when he speaks of slaves suffering under unjust masters, which I th- it is very relevant because uh, Peter is the apostolic voice behind Mark. Mark is kind of writing down what Peter tells him, so I, I think there's a connection here. I think what Peter is doing is he's saying, when you as a slave, when you suffer under, under the blows of an unjust master, when you, when you suffer under a society that doesn't see you as a full person, you actually participate in the sufferings of Jesus. When you receive these unjust blows, you look like Jesus. And it's easy for us to go, okay, yeah, I guess, I guess that makes sense. But, but again, get this. this. This slave who his culture saw as, as, as less than human, Peter is saying, no, you participate in the sufferings of Jesus who we worship as God and submit to as king. He's flipped the assumptions on their head that that the man God, Jesus Christ, who receives all honor, all glory, all power, that the the suffering slave is the one who looks most like Jesus, not the emperor, not the general, not the merchant, the slave. The third way I think we see this happen um, is as it relates to wives and husbands. Again, it seems fairly authoritarian when we read it off the top of our heads. And I also just want to say, I don't, I don't really have time to dive in. There's a whole debate in like Christianity. It's over like complementarianism and egalitarianism. Essentially, uh, it's it's a debate over w- these texts that talk about like women submitting to their husbands, women like talking in church, all of these things. How much of that is like cultural? How much of this is just based on the culture of the time that they're in? And how much of these are like theological principles that need to carry through today? Um, this is a imp- really, really important conversation to have, and I know that we have people on kind of both sides of that spectrum in our community, and we're really, really thankful um, to be a community that is able to live in the midst of tension and a community that's able to um, minister to people who hold different beliefs. I think that's really, really important for us. Um, I'm not going to dive into it really at all today, because I think if we focus on that issue, which, again, is a really, really important issue, we actually miss the point of what Peter's getting at. 
Because Peter's primary concern here is not to give us a manual on how slaves um, should react or how slaves should be treated. His primary purpose here is not to um, give us a manual for the relationship between husband and wives. I think the, the primary point for Peter here is he's showing us how do we live as exiles in the midst of an evil world and how do we resist that evil. So again, if you have questions, feel free to grab me after. I'm not promising I can answer them, but we can at least talk about it. Um, so 1 Peter 3, 1 through 2, likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Again, it sounds pretty authoritarian to our ears. But you have to remember that in the patriarchy, patriarchy of that time, whoever the patriarch, whoever the husband was worshiping, those were automatically the household gods. Your wife worshipped your gods, your slaves worshipped your gods, your children worshipped your gods. And that was just a done deal. There was no question. You didn't get to decide who you worshipped. There was no such thing as like, uh, like you, di- you didn't have like a marriage where one person had one religion and one person had the other. You just submitted to your husband's religion and that was fine. And Peter's assumption here in verse one and two is not only that the woman can actually, this is shocking, think for herself and, and, and can have a, a religion of her own, but also that she should be trying to win her husband over to it. Again, to us, we're like, oh, this sounds pretty authoritarian. To them, they're like, this is madness. Everything's going crazy. This, this, that, that a woman should try, she should try to win her husband over to her religion would have been shocking to Peter's readers. So we see this at work um, in terms of talking about government, we see this in terms of slaves, and we see this in terms of women. That even as Peter calls them to submit to these evil structures, because everyone can agree, like whether you're complementarian or egalitarian, we can all agree that like patriarchy is evil, fair? Yes? Okay, thank you. We'll try it again. We can all agree that patriarchy is evil. Fair? Yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. Like, and we can all agree that like, slavery is evil. We can all agree that like, violent nationalism is evil. So like, yeah, and, you, and to be fair too, like, you can be a complementarian and not be patriarchal. Like, these things are not, are not the same thing. Um, but the, like, all of these structures that Peter's addressing, um, evil is at work at them. So how how are we as Christians supposed to respond? How do we respond out of an identity of an exile? Not not with violence, says Peter, not not by grasping at power. We're not going to try to like revolt or stab our masters in the back in the middle of the night. No, Peter says, no, you, you submit to this evil. But even in submitting to it, you begin to undermine the assumptions that 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 propel the system forward. And finally, I think. This is what this whole text is structured around, and that's why we're preaching on so much of it today. I think it's all structured around 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24. And this is the example of Christian resistance, which is like the person and the work of Jesus Christ, particularly um, his death on the cross. My mouth's really dry today. Um, So 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24, listen to this. This This is really beautiful. This is right after, by the way, he's talked about um, slaves receiving blows from unjust masters. For, this, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, 
neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you have been healed. Here Peter tells us the model, the model of Christian resistance, the example. And he uses this word, um, upogramios, which is actually, he's just combining the Greek preposition for under and the Greek uh, verb to write. And he, so it literally means to underwrite. And this could actually refer to an object you would give school children that would have um, an indent of each letter of the Greek alphabet. And so part of their way of learning to write in Greek would be they, they would trace these lines, they would trace these indents and learn how to write the alphabet. And so Peter says, this is what Jesus Christ did for you when he died, when he suffered unjustly under evil, yet overcame it through a victorious resurrection. This is what Jesus gave you, that that Jesus' death didn't just defeat evil and sin and Satan and hell, which it absolutely did all those things, but that Jesus' death actually gives us an example of how we are supposed to engage with evil. That Jesus gave us the model that, that we trace the footsteps of Jesus. And that those footsteps, they lead us to a cross. That they lead us to suffering. But that, here's the trick, that, that even in the midst of what looked like defeat, that they lead us to victory. Jesus is the example of Christian resistance. And in a way, the, the, the slave suffering under an unjust master and, and the wife suffering under an unbelieving husband, they are also our example. Sean Christensen says this, um, thus it is the ethic of Christ himself as a servant who suffered unjustly but did not respond in a retaliatory manner that is to be modeled, specifically by household slaves of unjust masters and wives of unbelieving husbands. In this way, the ethic of slaves and wives, I love that, because we often talk about ethics in terms of like the powerful, and, and Peter's chosen to frame our ethics in the terms of the powerless, the ethic of slaves and wives following the example of Christ himself, serves as a broader example of this behavior, that is to characterize all believers. This behavior is not conformity to the standards set by society, but rather conformity to the image and the example of Christ that is characteristic of Christian discipleship. If you don't hear anything else today, I want you to hear this. Jesus' death doesn't just defeat evil. It also shows us how to resist it. I think, uh, as we think, like, because I think the, the thing that immediately jumps into my mind as I, as I think about this is, like, is this workable? Like, do you act, can you actually defeat evil by submitting to it? D- does it work? And I think a, a really beautiful image that we have in our history as Americans is the history of civil rights that was profoundly influenced by the teachings of Jesus. And... Um, One of the things Martin Luther King talks about um, when he's talking about civil disobedience is that a a crucial element is that when you break an unjust law, you have to submit to its consequences. So so when when civil rights activists would would do sit-ins or when they would would go onto buses or any sort of of civil disobedience, they never, well, they, they, Civil rights was messy, but um, Martin Luther King would have encouraged those who were following him to submit 
to the consequences, to submit to going to prison, to submit to the fines. Because in submitting to this evil, oppressive system, they were able to unmask it for what it was. In submitting to, um, to, to in some ways, yeah, in, in submitting to this, these evil laws, they were able to unmask it and people were able to look and say, wow, they, like, they just went into a diner and sat down and now they're sending attack dogs after them? Evil was shown for what it was and I, we, we're not where we need to be as a country um, in terms of like racial reconciliation. But tremendous victory, tremendous victory was won, not, not by picking up guns or swords, not by grasping after some sort of political power, but rather simply submitting to evil and unmasking it, showing the world that it really is. Because evil never wants you to believe that it's evil. Evil never wants you to believe that it's dangerous. It's always fine. It's not that bad. But submission, subversive submission, shows evil for what it is. So Christian resistance to evil, it's sourced in our identity as exiles. Its its strategy is subversion and submission. And its example is the person of Jesus Christ. I love what Yoder says on this. Um, The willingness to suffer is not merely a test of our patience or a dead space of waiting. Get this. It is itself a participation in the character of God's victorious patience with the rebellious of powers of government. Sorry, with the rebellious powers of creation. We subject ourselves to government because in so doing, Jesus revealed and achieved God's victory. So where do we go from here? I, um, I spent quite a bit of time thinking through, like, what does it look like for us who live in Lincoln Square or Albany Park or, or North Center? We, like, overall, I'd say most of us are coming from fairly, like, privileged geographic locations. We aren't people who really have to suffer that much. So, so what, what, what does it look like for us to engage in Christian resistance to evil? Because, honestly, there's not at least for me, I'll speak for myself, there's not too much that I have to submit to as unjust. Part of that is because of privilege. But, so, but, but how do we as a church begin to engage in that? And as, as I was reflecting um, on this, Jesus, like, my, my, head was, my, my eyes were just kind of turned to, like, the gospel and to the practices that we engage in as a community every week. And I thought, rather than telling all of you to, like, go do something with this, to, like, go outside and, and work really hard, um, like, I would encourage you, what does it look like for you to kind of begin to make this a part of your pattern? Because this is not a common pattern. The world, the world tells us that we need to defeat evil at any cost. Like, our TV shows and our movies, they celebrate, like, the spy or the military man who will do anything at any cost in order to achieve victory, no matter what. And, and the way of Jesus says, no, 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 the way in which you go about resisting evil is radically important. And so I think for us, the way we apply this text today is simply come to the table. Come, come to the broken bread, come to the poured out wine. When we take communion, and I love that we take communion on a weekly basis, we acknowledge the reality that the power of the Almighty God, the power of the Almighty God is revealed in weakness and in brokenness. Kevin Capick says this. Um, he's talking about coming to communion. He says, here someone else calls us to the table and they offer us the 
body and the blood of our Savior. Someone else repeats the words of Christ, this is my body broken for you, this is my blood shed for you. Our confession produces not fear or embarrassment, but receptivity to the grace of the Son's condescension. He came low to lift us high. He hears our confession not to mock us or to shame us, but to liberate us in forgiveness and grace. These are the marks of the kingdom. This, this practice at its core, it's not some soul-numbing ritual, as Marx would suggest. This is not something that encourages passivity. Rather, this is a practice which, when we engage in our hearts, are, are counterformed against our culture, a culture that believes that power and violence are the only way that things change. The table shows us that the, the, the most profound victory that has ever been won against evil The final victory that was won against evil happened in the midst of broken body and poured out blood. Not just of of, of anyone, but of God himself. That God's body was broken, that God's blood was poured out. The same God that flung stars into existence suffered in a body just like mine, just like yours. And that Jesus, the way that he's at work in the world today is the exact same, that that Jesus is at work in the world, not in spite of brokenness, but in the midst of it. That as our bodies are broken, that as as our blood is poured on, as we we receive the marks of suffering, that we image Christ, and that we begin to, to resist evil, which, spoiler alert, evil is in its death throes. Evil has been defeated. Jesus has has made a spectacle of every power, every principality. It's on its way out. We we have true victory, but that victory remains in brokenness. As a church, we worship a God whose body was broken and who bears in his body still the marks of his suffering. Even as Jesus is like lifted up at the right hand of the Father, praying and interceding on our behalf, his body still bears scars. This is the God that we worship, a scarred God. And this, again, it shouldn't cause us to shy away because we serve a God that has suffered, because we serve a God that is scarred, a God who who bears the marks of our sin in his body. I love what Luther says. He says, when we feel pain, when we suffer, when we die, let us turn to this, that we've been united to Christ in his suffering. Let us turn to this firmly believing and certain that it is not we alone, but Christ and the church who are in pain and are suffering and are dying with us. Contrary to popular belief, suffering doesn't prove that God hates us or is punishing us or that we just don't have enough faith. Rather, it is, it is when we suffer that we begin to embrace the upagramios, the pattern, the model, the example of Christ. It, it is precisely when we suffer in the midst of evil that we look most like Jesus. Would you guys pray with me?